as you can see, here Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. And we oftentimes encourage people to also pass through the waters of baptism as we follow Jesus. You have to follow Jesus through baptism, people say. But then we tend to end right there. As we saw being read right now, Jesus went through the waters of baptism, and the very next thing he did was he started calling people to follow him. So in other words, he started making disciples the moment he was baptized. This is something we too have to follow Jesus in, and that is in making disciples. And this is something that has gone by the wayside these days because um, I guess many reasons. One of them being people are connected to technology and they feel like, well, you know, I have to receive the word and I'm being discipled by this means and therefore I think everybody else is going to be disciples by the same, but discipled by the same. Yet God has called us in the beginning of his ministry as he started discipling. I think there's a bit of a ring or an echo for you. As he started discipling, he calls us to disciple. But then just as he leaves, after his resurrection, he says to the disciples, he says, now go into all the world and do what? Make disciples of all men. Making disciples is something we too have to get back to. So the question is, have you been baptized? The second question is, are you actively reaching out to others, making disciples. Who are you discipling? Answer that question to yourself because this is a commandment, the great commission for the life that you have here on earth. I wanted to talk with you about the origins of baptism. We don't get to talk about this because we're always talking about everything else. But since we are systematically walking through scriptures, allowing the Holy Spirit to create the narrative, we are following his mind, his way of thinking, his process, and right here, we have to actually put a stake in the ground and get a much clearer understanding of baptism. So really today, I want you to see yourself as a student of the Word of God, a student of scriptures, a student of the Bible, okay? And uh, so if you have your Bible, pen and paper, or however you want to make notes, uh, try and follow in this, because I think as we follow this process of the origins of baptism, so much of the gospel is revealed to us. So much about Jesus is revealed to us. And so much about God's heart toward you and I is revealed to us. You see, there's a theme in Scripture that refers to time, not just as regular time, but as in the fullness of time. In other words, it's time, but in a certain context. It's almost like, Time has the ability to mature. It has the ability here to grow old. It's to come to its fullness, the fullness of time. Can everybody say fullness of time? It's almost like when time has reached its critical moment, its moment of maturity. And according to scriptures, God planned to establish in the fullness of time His purposes. And this purpose or this plan of God is the revelation of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, but when the fullness of time came, when that critical moment in time came, when time had matured, when time had grown old, 
God sent his son. So God decided to establish his purpose when time, when, in the fullness of time. Again, he says that to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 verse 10. He says, regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ. So there was this moment when all things were going to be established in regards to God's redemptive plan of humanity. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he actually refers to that same thing, that fullness of time moment, but in a different, in a diff, in different language. Listen to how he says it. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, verse 2, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. In other words, the advent of Jesus is therefore in God's calendar the beginning of the last days. So when Jesus walked out on the stage, walked out on the scene 2,000 years ago, that was the fullness of time. That was the beginning of the last days. So before Jesus, it says, God spoke to our fathers in what way? By the mouths of the prophets. And then he says, in these last days, when the fullness of time came, he says, God speaks to us through who? Jesus, his son. There's the voice of God for you. This is how God speaks to us. Through the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. This is the fullness of time. So we conclude here that God has a timetable. God has a divine calendar. And this calendar has to do with Jesus, the goal of redemptive history. As a matter of fact, the whole entire Old Testament points forward to the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. All of the Old Testament has Jesus in mind, saturated, verse by verse, portion by portion, example by example, institution by institution, person by person. All of it points to one, the fullness of time, the culmination of all things, Jesus Christ, the purpose of God in this earth. While the whole Old Testament points to Jesus, the entire New Testament proclaims, He has come. <laughs> Here He is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is this important, you might ask? Because understanding this concept right here about the fullness of time, where God establishes His purpose, His goal for humanity is Jesus Christ. Understanding this helps us to read the Scriptures with Christ in mind, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. And so, so we can correctly interpret the Scriptures. And while reading through the Old Testament, we see glimpses of God's grace revealed through forward-looking persons, personalities, through forward-looking events, through forward-looking institutions. For instance, in forward-looking personalities, we'll see somebody like Noah, where Jesus is the greater Noah. We'll see people like Moses, where, Moses, where Jesus is the greater Moses. Or like Joshua, Jesus is the greater Joshua. Or like David, Jesus is the greater David. Or like Joseph and Job, all of them types of the coming Christ. All of, their all of their lives point to the coming Messiah and what He's going to be like and what He's going to do. Forward-looking events include events like the flood. The flood pointing forward 
to the coming judgment of God. The Red Sea opening, God making a way. Manna falling from heaven, from the sky. All these are types of things to come. And we also have forward-looking institutions in the Old Testament. For instance, we have the Feasts of Israel, the Sabbath, Yom Kippur, the Passover. All of these institutions are forward-pointing to the works that are to come in Christ Jesus, all pointing to the future Messiah and His redemptive work in us. So I'm saying this because it's so important for us to understand when we open the Bible, it's actually not about us. It's about God saving us. It's actually about Jesus, the coming Lord, and then in the New Testament, proclaiming who He is and that He has come. One of the um, most prominent Old Testament and New Testament practices is, in fact, baptism. And we're talking about baptism because we're studying John the Baptist right here, which is one of the two sacraments of the church. And most people think that baptism started with John the Baptist. Well, I did at least. But where would he have come up with this strange concept of baptizing people? I mean, imagine this guy, uh, you know, wearing clothes made with camel skin and camel hairs and a leather belt, and he's just eating strange things. <laughs> living in a semi-desert, and he's just crying in a wilderness. Repent and be baptized. Make way for the Lord. Repent and be baptized. Baptized? What is that? Come, I'll want to dunk you in this water. All right, I guess, why don't you just go ahead and dunk me? Let's see what happens. You see, to me, it was always like a strange concept initiated by this man called John the Baptist. But the question we want to answer today is, what did the Israelites think when they heard this prophet of God in the desert saying, come and get baptized. What went through their minds? Like, would you agree with me that it's a strange concept? I know some of you said you've been baptized in the Jordan where Jesus was. Oh, but it's a strange idea. Dirty brown water. Let me dunk you. Okay. <laughs> all the way? Yep, all the way. All right. Why? Because God has called you to repent. I can repent without being baptized. Well, there's a lot happening here, pointing to what's going to happen in the future. And so we'll see what happened in the minds of those Hebrews when they were called by this prophet to repent and be baptized and to make way for the Lord so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. First, we start with the baptism of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, God tells Noah, the sin of the world has reached a critical point. There's a time where there's now enough sin where it's reached its limit and God has to pour His wrath and His judgment out on sin. And so right here in Genesis chapter 6, when God speaks to Noah, He tells Noah that the world has reached this point of sin and that he was going to destroy the world, the earth, with water. That was his judgment. Water, therefore, is a type of God's judgment. So don't forget that. Make a little note in, in the back of your mind. Water is, the is a type of God's judgment all through the Bible. And then at the end of time, God judges not with water but with fire. That's right, in the same way. However, God promises that He will save Noah and his family from this water. And the story of Noah is the origin of baptism. This is where baptism started in the minds of the Hebrews. And the example of Noah gives us the, the, the picture of salvation 
through judgment. Salvation through judgment. God judges in order to save. Let me say that again. Salvation comes by God's judgment of sin. God saves you when He judges your sin in Christ. You see, God saved you and me, but how? By allowing His judgment, of course, to fall upon the cross, fall upon His Son, for His Son to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So God saves Noah and his family by judging the entire sinful world that they were in, yet He saves them from His judgment by means of an ark. 1 Peter 3 verse 20 says, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, his family, were brought safely through the water, through the judgment. They were brought safely through the water. Verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Here we see Peter parallels how Noah was saved from the waters because he was in the ark. So we are saved from death because we are in Christ. In the same way, you will pass through judgment and not be touched. You see, death equals the grave. In baptism, it is the watery grave representing death. And we are saved from that grave as we rise in Christ. Just as Noah and his family were saved from judgment as they came out on the other side of the great flood in the ark. So you come out on the other side of death in Christ, alive and safe. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Number two, we see the baptism of Noah. Noah comes off, excuse me, Moses. The baptism of Moses. Moses comes after Noah. So another Old Testament example of baptism is when, when Moses was a baby boy, and just like in the time of Jesus, Pharaoh declared all little boys to be put to death. Because he heard that there was a Savior amongst those who were just born. And through all these examples, you will find Jesus to be the greater Moses. So to save Moses from Pharaoh, he was placed in a little basket that was smeared with tar. And the exact same word used in the Bible for basket that Moses was put into, that same word basket is also used previously as the word ark. As a matter of fact, both made with wood, both the exact same word, ark or basket. So in other words, here we see a type repeating itself. God is sending us a message. Just as the ark saved Noah from the waters of judgment, here we see now the basket saves little Moses, baby Moses, from the waters of the Nile. Water being judgment. So about 80 years after Moses drifted down the Nile in this little ark, Moses and the children of Israel went through a second baptism as they went through the Red Sea. So here we see Israel was baptized into salvation from Egypt. This is the baptism they went through. This baptism through the Red Sea is the baptism of salvation from Egypt. How were they saved from Egypt? By following their leader Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. In 1 Corinthians 10, 2, it says that. It says, and they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
They all were baptized into who? Moses. It's interesting how Paul here clearly states the Israelites were baptized into Moses, not into the Red Sea. Because they were baptized into Moses, they were saved from the Red Sea. And after walking through, walking through the Red Sea, Moses dropped his staff. And that moment that he dropped his staff, the waters of judgment crushed down on the Egyptian army who were pursuing them and destroyed the entire army. That was God's judgment crushing the rest of the world. And in the same way, we, you and I, believers in Christ, we are baptized into Christ, which saves us from the judgment of God, the very same judgment that will destroy all those outside of Christ. So we see we have Noah's baptism, and then we have Moses' baptism. Now thirdly, we're going to look at baptism of Joshua, Joshua's baptism. And here's Joshua leading the children of Israel into the promised land, but they were blocked by the raging waters of the Jordan River. And God speaks very clearly to Joshua, tells him exactly what to do and what's going to happen. And he says to him, in essence, that all the children of Israel needs to cross over this raging river in order to get to the promised land. And he says, what you're going to do, he wakes him up in the morning and he says, you're going to get the priests to put the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders and they're going to carry this ark. And in the ark of the covenant, there is the presence of God. Remember? And then the ark became the heart of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle became, was then built into a temple by Solomon. And then in the New Testament, he says, now you are stones being built up in this temple of God. Right? We are the temple of God as we come together. Not as we live apart, but as we come together, we become this temple each as a bot, as members within one body, and he is the head. And so here he says to Joshua, let the priests walk toward the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant resting on those pillars, on those poles, excuse me. And when the priests feet touch the water, the water is going to split. This Jordan, this raging river that's flooding through past them, what's going to happen is on the one side, from the north, the water is going to pile up into a huge pillar. It's going to look like a massive stack of water, like a, like a high-rise building downtown. And the rest of it's going to flow down, but everything coming towards you is going to stack up into a pillar. And then these priests, with the Ark of the Covenant, with the presence of God, they have to stand in the middle of this river, right in the middle of the Jordan. And they have to not move while all the children of Israel are passing through this river. And when all of them have passed through on dry ground, the priests can continue with the ark. This is a type of baptism you'll see. Let's read it in Joshua 3 verse 14. It says, So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people, and when those who were carrying the ark came up to the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying, this, carrying the ark stepped down into the edge of the water, verse 16, then the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zerathan. Verse 17. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel, while all Israel crossed on dry ground. 
until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Amazing. You will notice every type and shadow of baptism clearly defines a different aspect of God's saving plan in Christ Jesus. In, the, in this example, we see how the priests have carried the Ark of the Covenant into the middle of the Jordan while the rest of the Israelites were able to walk across Jordan in dry ground, right? This is a picture. It's a picture of a future high priest. Who's our high priest today? Jesus. All right, let me just explain this to you quick because I know many of us come out of uh, a Roman background, so I want to explain this, but um, the priesthood works like this. In the Old Testament, there was a priesthood, and there was a high priest. The high priest was Aaron at the time, Moses' brother, right? And then there was a succession of high priests. And the priesthood interceded for the people. The high priest, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies in order to bring sacrifices so that God's wrath against the children of Israel's sins would be swallowed up on Yom Kippur. And then he would put his hands on the, on the goat and he would speak the sins of the people onto the goat. Once a year, send the goat into the desert to die. So the goat would carry the sin away from them. But this was the, this was the job, the offices of the priesthood. But in the New Testament, it's very clear. He says, ye are therefore a peculiar people, a holy priesthood. The, whole, the stones, the stones, the Cephas, the Peters, that have this revelation of Jesus Christ, together, fit together, and so make up this brand new temple in which God now resides. He used to reside in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant became the heart of the tabernacle. The tabernacle then was built into a massive temple by Solomon, and God resided within that, which was in the heart of Israel. But in the New Testament, Jesus raises up a brand new temple, which is you and I, the stones, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, the Bible says. So the priesthood is the body of Christ, not the ones who lead the body of Christ. Because the high priest is no longer Aaron or the secession of Aaron. There is no secession of Aaron. It is now Jesus Christ himself. He has become our head. He has become our high priest. He is today before God interceding for you and I forever. He is the one bringing the blood, not of a goat, but his own. That now proves that we have been made right with God. The blood is sufficient for whatever life you come from when you repent and make Him Lord. Amen? So He is our high priest, and you, we all together, we are the priesthood in this world. Now you understand the magisterium of the New Testament church. But here we see that Mm. Um, I must just find my place here. Where was I, everybody? <laughs> There you go. There you go. The baptism of Joshua. Thank you. 
appreciate it, everybody. Thanks for making notes. So in this example, we see the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant. What happened here is they stood right in the middle of the, they stood right in the, middle of the Jordan, and as they stood right in the middle of the Jordan, they interceded between the water piling up, becoming as tall as probably as a high-rise downtown. They stood right there between the water, wanting to bring judgment and the people of God. They interceded. They were a type and a shadow of the coming high priest, Jesus Christ. Then number four, we have the baptism of Jonah. Baptism of Jonah. About a thousand years after this, which is now about 800 years before Christ, there lived this prophet Jonah whose life was forward-looking picture of baptism. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach repentance to God's own enemies. Now Jonah was angry at the people of Nineveh because of their lies, because they hated God, because they ignored God, because they were defiled. And I can only imagine Jonah's anger towards the Ninevites were the same as David's anger towards Goliath. Who, who is this man who, will, who defies the name of our God? And here he wants to take out this giant, right? But in the same way as Jonah. Jonah feels the same way about Nineveh. But God comes and tells Jonah, no, I want you to go and preach to them and tell them to repent. And I will show them mercy and grace. Jonah is not happy about this. He doesn't want to see God giving them an opportunity to repent. No, he wants to see God just take care of him. Send out your fire, God. Destroy him, kill him. Of course, he was very reluctant. Therefore, runs away from God's purposes instead. And as the story goes, he jumps on a ship. And while hiding in this boat, God sends this mighty storm. And just before the storm completely destroys the boat, Jonah confesses his sin to the rest of the sailors. Sailors, he confesses that he's running from God. And then he says, throw me in the water. What a great picture of baptism. Repent and be baptized. <laughs> the sailors agreed, threw him overboard. The men were saved and gave credit to God for saving them, but Jonah was surely dead, at least in their minds. He has to be dead. I mean, we threw him into the middle of the ocean. Jonah then gets swallowed up by a mass of fish, but just think about it. So here's a picture of jo uh, Jonah, a picture of a greater Christ, and as he goes into the grave, these men are saved, where they would have died by water, the judgment of God. Jonah then gets swallowed up by a massive fish. We think it's a whale and, and serving as a type of casket, but one with gills. Here he is, just like Noah was in the ark in the midst of this mighty flood. Just as little Moses was in that little ark, that little basket in the midst of the mighty Nile in the water that would have killed him, he was kept safe. Just as Joshua led the children of Israel through the Jordan and the priests stood in the middle of the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant on top of their backs and the water piled up like a, like a massive high-rise building next to them and didn't overcome them, they, they were kept safe. And in the same way here we see 
Jonah is kept safe in this whale, in this fish, in this casket with gills. Three days later, this massive fish spews Jonah onto the dry ground, and Jonah immediately gets up and he goes to Nineveh. He speaks the word of God, and the entire city repents. The entire city repents. Now, just an interesting thing to notice, that from the beginning of the initiation or the origin, origin of baptism, which starts with Noah, Noah and how many were saved? Eight. There were eight people saved. Right after him, we have Moses leading the entire nation through the Red Sea. And we have, we, we have Joshua leading the entire Israelite na Israel nation through the Jordan. And then now we have Jonah here, think about this, going to Nineveh, God-haters, Gentiles, they weren't Hebrew, they're not, they're not God's people, and these people repent. It's, it's fantastic if you know how it is always God's heart to also have the Gentiles come in. And then number five, we have baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus. So we've had the baptism of Noah. Noah's baptism. We've had Moses' two baptisms. The little casket in the Nile and crossing the Red Sea. And then we have the baptism of Joshua going through the raging waters of the Jordan. And then we have the baptism of Jonah. And then through this baptism, after which he immediately starts ministering. And now we have the baptism of Jesus. And we see Jesus too, right after his baptism, the first thing he does is he ministers, makes disciples, and starts performing miracles. The baptism of Jesus, according to Matthew chapter 3, was done by John. He tells John to baptize him, but John the Baptist initially refuses and there's a very good reason as to why. Because John's baptism was a call to repentance. Now, if I call you to repent, if I say, hey, come, repent, come forward and repent, you'll go like, uh, repent from what? Your sins, right? And here John was between a rock and a hard place because he was calling, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus goes, okay, I'll repent. Battery is dead. If you bring me two batteries, I'll change them quick. Can you hear me okay? situation that John the Baptist was in, and here he is calling people to repentance, and Jesus says, be repentance by baptism, and Jesus says, okay, I'll come. He goes, wait, no, 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 I'm not baptizing you. What are you going to repent from? He knows Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. 
And that's why John goes, no, 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 I'm not going to get back. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to baptize you. I need to be baptized by you. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says this to him in Matthew 3.15. He says, allow it at this time. For in this way, it was fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. All righteousness. Then John allowed him in. So Jesus had to do this, but you have to ask, well, what is the meaning of Jesus' baptism? Why did he get baptized if he, was, if he had no sin to repent from? And John's baptism was a baptism unto repentance. Well, Jesus went into the water and was baptized because this was Christ identifying with sinful man. He was identifying with sinful man. And this was done in, in order so that all righteousness could be fulfilled. Fulfilled. Thank you, brother. Excellent. Back on. So the question that I need, that I had in my mind is how is all righteousness fulfilled by Jesus identifying with sinful humans and so get baptized? How was all righteousness fulfilled? How was this plan of God that was taking place in the fullness of time, how was this time for this to happen? Like what's being fulfilled here? That's the question. Okay, what has been fulfilled, Jesus, by you identifying with man by baptism? Well, first, like Noah's ark, Jesus' cross will become a refuge for all who seek rest in Him. Just like Noah, Noah's ark, Jesus' cross will become a refuge. Number two, just like Moses, this staff that was lifted up in front of the Red Sea cause the Red Sea to open, Jesus will be lifted up so as to deliver His people from impending death. Just like the priests in the Jordan, Jesus will throw Himself in between the flood of God's wrath and those whom He is saving. Finally, just like Jonah, Jesus will volunteer Himself to be swallowed up in the earth so that He might rise to save the nations. Jesus is fulfilling all of the Old Testament, not just the specific prophecies, but the different personalities, Moses, Jonah, all of them. Jesus is the greater Moses, the greater Jonah, the greater Joshua. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He's fulfilling every one of the institutions, every one of the events, for instance, the flood, for instance, Every one of those that we spoke about earlier on, Jesus is fulfilling them. So, Basui, if you don't mind to bring me that board, I just wanted to show you guys something. And I'm doing this because with the hopes of you understanding baptism. There are many baptisms. Bible scholars specifically refer to seven different baptisms. Two of them are very, very specific unto you and I in the New Testament. Let me just quickly see by a show of hands, how many of you have been baptized already? You have been baptized. Eh? And I'm hoping that, thank you, uh, that 
your baptism that you went through is solidified and clarified in your mind as to what happened back there. We are living from different moments that have happened. Like, for instance, before you were born again, you were living from a moment that happened back in the garden. <laughs> your whole entire life, all of who you are is influenced by what Adam did in the garden because he was your representative. This simply means, he doesn't mean you are struggling because he made a mistake. That's not what that means. It means that you, Adam was your representative. Everything Adam did is what you would have done had you been there. I can't tell you how important this is. Have you ever heard of what's happening today called the, the deconstruction of faith? Have you heard the deconstruction, people deconstructing their faith? YouTube, it, you'll see. People who were, have been saved all of their lives, serve God all of their lives, just now deconstructing their faith, becoming faithless. I was just listening yesterday to a minister, or this lady, she was part of a ministry, let me say it this way, and she was traveling the world evangelizing and came to a place where she now needed to deconstruct her faith. And then what they do is they go on YouTube and they explain their deconstruction. But most of them have to deconstruct over this idea here that why is it, a couple of ideas, let me just throw out two. Why is it that God will hold us accountable for what Adam did? That would be unjust. You don't, you don't hold Sid accountable for my mistakes, right? If I, made, if I did something wrong, then I have to pay for what I did wrong. You can't send him to prison for the money I stole, right? And if you did, you would be an unjust judge. And people want to say that God is unjust. The God of the Bible is unjust. Why? Because here he is. I didn't ask to be born a sinner, but here I am, born a sinner. And, I, and you know what? I didn't ask to be born blind. Here I am, born blind. I didn't, be asked, I didn't ask to be born deaf, but here I am, born deaf. Can't hear the truth, can't see, can't see God's plan of salvation. I have a sinful nature and a flesh that entices me. Now I have a sinful record. I'm going to be judged and condemned. I'm helpless and I'm hopeless because of my nature and my actions. And it's none of my fault. It's all Adam's fault. And they go like, God is unjust. Here he is judging me for who I was born. I, wasn't, I was born this way, like Lady Gaga said. And only an unjust God would punish me for it. So they have to deconstruct because of that. But what they misunderstand is that you aren't a sinner because Adam was a sinner. No, you're a, you're, a, you're a sinner because in Adam, your representative, the, the one who says, okay, now this is what Glenn Walzak is going to be like in 6,000 years. This is what, this is what Alex is going to be like in 6,000 years. He was your representative because had you lived 6,000 years ago, you too would have done that. You know, this, this thing about representative, being a representative of the people is very clear in the Bible. Like, for instance, instead of two armies fighting, they would just choose their two champions, Goliath, the Philistine, 
the champion of the Philistines, and David, the champion of the Israelites. And then the Philistines would stand on the one side, and the Israelites would hide and cower behind rocks on the other side. And then their champion, little David, would come, and they are all vested in him, right? And he goes, and whoever wins the battle, that army wins. Whoever loses that battle, that army loses because their representative, they are vested in their representative. And so, in the same way, Jesus now is your representative. <laughs> you see? You are in Him. In other words, God looks at Him and sees Him perfect, and that represents all of who you now are. You see, He became sin for you so that you may become the righteousness of God in Him. You are in Him. He represents you. And in the same way, folks, when you see all of this deconstruction happening, it is only a misunderstanding that you are not a sinner because Adam sinned in the sense that he is guilty and you are bearing his consequences. No, you too are guilty, and that's why people who don't receive Jesus will bear the full brunt of Adam's sin because they are represented in Adam in this way that they would have sinned as Adam sinned had they been there 6,000 years ago. So no, God is not unjust. <laughs> Never. Never unjust. And the second reason for this deconstruction, I didn't mean to go here, but I, but I feel like I should. The second reason for this deconstruction is simply the same old, same old, same old. Well, how can a loving father not just, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? Because he's just, folks. That's why. You really think it's right for God to forgive, you know, uh, let me not go there. You know, some of the worst crimes that you've ever thought of. Really, God would just, God should just say, yeah, I know, uh, you know, 25 children's lives completely abused, completely destroyed by you and you know, bled at your hands. And, but you know what? God, God should just forgive you. That would be so unjust. And so God has to balance the, just, the scales of justice. And then what He does is He puts you in Christ and He pours His judgment onto Christ, who is He, God. He takes it upon Himself. And people go like, well, you know, here's a father, supposedly loving father, crushing His own son because you sinned. Well, that, that's like, it's like an, he's an insane power up in the sky. Why doesn't he just crush the guilty instead of his loving son, his beloved son, on their behalf? That's called cosmic child abuse, they say. And so deconstruction takes place. Unfortunately, you know, once again, I can't find a more clearly understood scripture well, I can't understand, I can't find a clearly um, perspective of who God really is and why He really did what He did outside of the Reformed understanding of Scriptures. I just don't. And I see deconstruction happening because people are buying into some really strange doctrines that cannot answer the world's tough questions. 
And when they cannot answer the tough questions over and over and over and over and over again, they deconstruct. This is why many, many parents, they raise their kids in some of these uh, crazy maniac churches, right? And then they wonder why their kids don't want to serve God. Because there are no answers for the tough questions. That's simply why. But let me just tell you this thing, that when Paul was asked that question about sin and grace and God judgment on sin and so forth, he goes like, who, who are you to judge God for what he decided to do? You don't know all things. He does. And we cannot rise above God and say, well, that's not loving. Well, that's cosmic abuse. Oh, my gosh. You know, so we, we, we have to really dive into the Word. Otherwise, you're going to keep running into, into walls, not having answers. And eventually, you'll see more and more people deconstructing, especially in the ministry. So I want to close off by just showing you what scholars point to when they point to the different baptisms throughout Old Testament and New Testament. And I want to show you the baptisms that are, in fact, important for you to understand because this is what happened to you, the believer who has been baptized. Well, first, we have the baptism of Moses, <clears throat> which we spoke about in detail. As Israel identified with Moses, remember, they didn't identify, they, didn't, they weren't baptized into the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses, and because they followed him, he was their representative. The water of the Red Sea did not destroy them. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 and 3, where the New Testament refers to Moses, the baptism of Moses. Then secondly, we have the baptism of John. This is the call to repentance. This is where we are at in the book of John. And this is where John calls everybody, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is the fullness of time. It is the beginning of the last days. He's about to walk out on the stage. Repent and be baptized. Make way for Him in your lives. Just want to make this point quick. In the Old Testament, when somebody came to the Jewish nation and said, Hey, we want to be part of God's people. We want to be part of you, God's family. Then they would go through three things. Number one, they would go through many questions where they would be badgered with questions like why you want to do this and where you're from and what's your intention. And do you really, are you coming in as a spy or do you really want to serve the one and only God? Do you really want to be an Israelite? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Okay, good. Step number two, circumcision. Owie. Seven days later, after circumcision, then these people would get baptized in water in order to become a true Hebrew. That was their process of immigration, by the way. Tough. And then the Bible says now, you know, receive them. That's when he says, receive the stranger. Receive the stranger. Receive the stranger. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of nauseated by how uh, people use stuff for political gain these days. But that is how they became part of the Hebrew nation. So they understood baptism. They understood baptism through Noah. They understood baptism through Moses. Now here comes John, and he's baptizing them. And he says to them now, repent and be baptized. John's baptism was a call to admit and recognize that they have sinned and that they 
choose, they want, and, they, and, they, and they're asking God for forgiveness of their sins. This is in Mark 1, verse 4. Number three, the baptism of Jesus. In this baptism, Jesus identifies with sinful man. That's what Jesus' baptism was about, identifying with those John was baptizing. And then number four, the fourth kind of baptism is the baptism of fire. This is such a big, big confusion here because many people build their ministries around fire, you know, <laughs> be filled with fire. And, and so really the baptism of fire, I want to encourage you to go read it in Matthew 13, verse 1 through 12, and you will see that this baptism is a baptism of judgment. Remember? <laughs> Remember the, the, the baptism that has been through water was water represents judgment. But in the end time, what represents judgment? Fire. Fire represents judgment. And so here we have the baptism of fire where Jesus will judge the world of their sin. And then we have the fifth baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, this happens at your salvation. This happens the moment you get sealed for the day of redemption. You are baptized in the Holy Ghost. We are immersed in the Spirit like you would have been immersed in water. The Holy Spirit is in you, on you, and He works through you. He gives you a brand new heart. He opens the eyes of your heart. He gives you understanding. He opens your eyes so you can see your need to be made right with a perfectly holy God. And He causes you to be able to see his way for you to get there is through Jesus and Him alone. And so this Holy Ghost that saturates your eyes and your ears and your heart and He opens up your understanding, this is what happens at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14 and 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Let's read that. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. You see... Baptized in the Spirit. By one Spirit you were baptized. Into what? Not into charismaniacs. No, into one body. We're all entering this body. We are the temple that now carries this Holy Ghost. You are a stone. You are a stone. You are a stone. And together we make this temple, this new temple. And we are the priesthood. And just like the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant through the Jordan... You and I together now, we carry the Holy Ghost in this world. We are the temple because we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to see. You wouldn't have been able to hear the truth. See your need for salvation. See the way of salvation. You wouldn't have had a new heart that understands the gospel. You wouldn't have had a heart that repents in order to believe in Jesus. If you do, that's a sign that you have been filled and baptized in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then number six, you have the baptism of the cross. This is interesting where those two brothers of thunder came to Jesus and said, hey, make us the greatest in your kingdom, will you? Actually, their mom asked Jesus to make them the greatest. And uh, Jesus says, can you drink from the cup that I'm drinking from? They said, oh, yeah, we can do all things. <laughs> Jesus basically said to them, you guys have no idea. Two punks. And here Jesus uses the language in Mark 10, verse 35 and 39. Jesus uses his language to refer to his coming suffering of the cross. He uses the language of baptism. He says, I'm going to be baptized into suffering. Baptized into suffering. Baptized into the cross. And then number seven 
is the baptism of believers. This is when a person chooses to go through the waters of baptism after they, be, after they come to Christ. This is what you and I did. We came to Christ and we had ourselves baptized to show the world that we have, number one, died to ourselves. That's baptism. Come and die. We die to ourselves. We are buried into that water grave. We are buried into that judgment. But in Christ, just like Noah and his family was buried in the heart of that ark, in the middle of that judgment, God saves through judgment. Now you and I, here we are in Christ, saved as the judgment of God falls on Him. And so we show this in our baptism. We die to ourselves, buried in Christ, in this water grave, and then we rise in Christ's life. Romans 6, verse 3 and 4. So of the seven baptisms that scholars refer to in Scripture's Old Testament and New Testament, only two are very personal and significant to the Christian today. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I circled them in red. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that is the one that saves you and I. Opens our eyes, opens our ears, gives us a new heart that believes and repents. Just so you know, salvation is preceded and followed by repentance. That's why John said to the, to the Pharisees, you guys stand over there with your arms folded while I'm baptizing everybody unto repentance. He says, why don't you prove by the way you live that you've actually repented? You haven't repented because salvation is preceded and followed by this repenting heart. How many of you, now that you're a Christian, are free to actually sin? It doesn't even make sense at all, is it? No, you're not. <laughs> because your new heart hates it. You love God so much, why would you want to violate Him without feeling that you need to repent from it? There's a message out there that's against repentance, and we need to watch out for it. But the first baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that saves us. The second baptism that applies to you and I is the believer's baptism, and that identifies us with the church. You are baptized into the body of believers. And I'll leave you with this one thought. Folks, baptism is a big deal. Baptism is a big deal. There's so many benefits to it. For one, it clears your conscience. Right, It's your testimony to the world of what happened to you on the inside. Just like I always say, this ring doesn't actually make me married. It shows you that I am married. Baptism doesn't actually save you eternally. It shows that God has saved you. It's a sacrament in the church. We only have two, by the way, baptism and communion. And both of those are expressions of what has already happened and what is already true for us. But I want to leave you with this thought that you and I, we follow Jesus Christ. How? Through baptism. Yes, Lord, I'm dying to myself and I'm going to rise in Christ. And this is a beautiful drama of how I am saved through judgment because I'm in Christ. But Jesus immediately comes out of the water and he starts calling, just like you heard Dave read. Immediately, he starts calling disciples. Hey, you, follow me. And I love that last one, Nathaniel. Nathaniel hears that Jesus, hey, they found the Christ. Really, huh? Wow, okay, good for you. <laughs> and Nathaniel, he says, like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nope, you did not find the Messiah. Nope, he's from that, that town over there. No. Just come and see. 
Well, Nathaniel walks up to Jesus, and Jesus sees him. He says, hey, you're Nathaniel. What? Who told him? Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the tree. Now, who knows what happened while he was sitting under the tree? But he immediately knew that this was the Messiah. Jesus makes the statement. He says, a, a Jew in whom there is no deceit, a Hebrew in whom there is no deceit, all the way from their father Jacob, who was a deceiver. I mean, you read through the <laughs> history. All of them are deceivers. They're all deceivers. And here's Nathaniel. Nope. You guys suck. <laughs> he goes, ah, here's the guy that's actually honest. Kind of like him. No deceit, no guile. But the point is here Jesus is immediately entering his ministry. How did he enter his ministry? Making disciples. How do you enter your ministry after baptism? You start making disciples. How do you make disciples? Take somebody for coffee. How about it? Well, I'm discipling my wife right now. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, if you're, if you're a husband, <laughs> you have a family, go. you have to disciple your family. Of course, it's a taken, it's a given. But you as a family, who are you discipling? How are you going about discipling? It takes time. It takes money. It takes effort. It takes you giving a shoulder for them to cry on, ear for them to uh, speak into. It takes you to be a, a sounding board for people to bounce truth off of. And you go, okay, yeah, so that's nice, of you. That's nice that you think that way. I just want to let you know uh, you're thinking contrary to what God is thinking. And so it, it means that you would have to actually have to be able to like pull out a couple of verses, right? And if you can't, if you don't know verses, that's fine. Disciple somebody with somebody who knows verses. Like, here's my Bible. Okay, tell me again. What did you tell me last time? Tell it to him. Let's see what he says. You know. Uh, by the way, I mean, Google. I don't know. Google a verse on that issue. But start somewhere. Start somewhere. Disciple someone. Speak to someone. But pray, pray about them. Pray for them before you speak to them. But your prayer is never, Lord, do you think I should minister to that person? That is not a prayer. Actually, that's, that, that's a real dumb prayer. Why? Because you were already taught by the Scriptures, which is Holy Ghost breathed, to go and minister, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. And you go like, God, do you want me to make a disciple? No, you don't. Okay, good. You were wrong. <laughs> Holy Ghost, you were wrong when you breathed that. Because right now I'm hearing you say no. <laughs> I wanted to encourage you. Think about who God is put into your life, every single one of them, to be discipled by you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you have given us a great, great, great commission. And that is to reach all ethnicities, ethnos, the world with this gospel. It is, the, the power is in the gospel. Power is in the gospel. And we don't have to make it powerful. It is powerful without us. We just have the opportunity to be a part of what you are already doing. Lord, please use us in this way, every single one of us individually, in Jesus' name. Now, Lord, this is a call to action, and I pray, God, that you open our hearts and our minds and our understandings to see what you have called us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.